When I was a kid, I'm talking eight, nine, 10 years old. Some of you that are old like me, you will relate to this. When we were kids, summer came around, and then you'd get up in the morning, and then your mother would say, go outside and play. Now, I know a lot of you younger folks don't know anything about this, but we used to actually go outside and find things to do. And then the idea was uh, you come home when the streetlights come on. But if for some reason there was nothing going on with your friends or there was, uh, you know, you were hanging out at the house too much, my brother and I would drive our mom absolutely crazy during the summertime. And she was, how many of you moms, you don't have to raise your hand, are ready for your kids to go back to school, right? This, especially after this year, uh, my kids haven't gone to school in two years. Well, get them out, right? That my mom wanted me out of the house so bad. You can understand. My wife wants me out of the house a lot of times now, but my mom wanted me out of the house so bad. And here was the beauty of it. For a quarter, you could get rid of me all day. She would give me a quarter, sometimes 50 cents, and send me down to the arcade. And there was this ancient game called pinball. And I was a master at this game. And you, I literally, this is how I made money in the summer, I'm not kidding. I would go down to the bowling alley where they had this arcade, and my mom would give me maybe 50 cents, and I would start playing pinball. And you get free games if you get enough score, right? And the games just rack up on the machine. And I would build up a bunch of free games, play for hours, and by the end of those hours, there might be 10 free games on the machine. I'd sell that for two bucks and go home. This is the way I made my money during the summertime. My mother was glad to get rid of me. I was glad to play pinball, and I made money at it. It was a great deal. So you say, why is he opening his sermon with a pinball story? Because um, I'm going to try to make this loose connection. See, it's been a long time since I've played pinball, but in this sermon series, I am putting my pinball skills to work. Because instead of going verse by verse through the book of Acts, we are opening the book of Acts and going back and forth, page by page, turning pages and bouncing around like a pinball. There's my connection. And, and, and all this bouncing around, we're getting to get a glimpse sort of um, topic by topic through the book of Acts, as opposed to just verse by verse. And so we're trying to do all this in context, but there's really four mini-series in this series on the book of Acts. The first one we called Co-Mission. It was all about the mission that God has called us to be on with Him and how we're to participate him, with Him in that mission. The second one, the one that we're finishing up today, is called Body Life. And it's really about how Jesus said, you are now my body. And we're made up of many members, but we are one body. And now we carry out that mission in his absence from the earth. We are his body, his hands and feet, and we work together as a body. And what does it mean to be one in Christ as a church family? And we've been talking about that for several weeks. Um, next week, we're going to move on. We're going to start talking about the power of God manifested in the people of God. And so all throughout the book of Acts, you see amazing displays of God's power. We're going to dig into some of those displays of God's power and go, okay, what does this teach us about God? What is this about? What is it like to walk in this kind of power as followers of Christ today in the 21st century? And then the fourth series is going to be about, okay, now that we've seen it, now that we've gotten the example, 
Let's not forget God's calling where he said, okay, go and make disciples of all nations, that we are actually going to be his witnesses. That's what he's called us to. I had the incredible privilege yesterday of being a part of a memorial service in which um, we were just honoring a man who half the room had been led to Christ by this guy. What an incredible privilege to realize and what a challenge for me to realize, you know what? We carry the torch of the gospel with us as followers of Christ wherever we go. He hasn't just said, hey, listen, there's a story in a book. If anybody happens to hear about it, then maybe they'll get to know me. But to go, no, no, you're supposed to actually develop relationships with people. You're supposed to actually love people. You're supposed to actually be like Jesus in the way you interact with people. And you're supposed to actually tell them about the different that Christ is making in your life. And when we do that, we get to see God doing amazing things and that power gets manifested through the church. So that's gonna be sort of this four-part mini-series that we're doing here uh, on the book of Acts. But today we're wrapping up the section on body life in the book of Acts. Not because there's nothing else to say about what it is to be the body of Christ, but because we need to move on and explore other topics. So let's get um, context set. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 13. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, it would be a great idea to open right now to Acts chapter 13. We're going to pick up right there. In Acts chapter 13 last week, we just looked at the first three verses where we were introduced to a church in a city called Antioch, one of the major cities of that part of the world, one of the major trade centers of the Roman Empire. And we were introduced to this church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles who had come to know Christ and who God gave a vision, a calling a heart's desire to see people far away reach with the gospel. And we saw how God spoke to them and said, listen, I want you to make an investment. I want you to actually send your very best leaders off in order to bring the gospel to those who haven't heard it before. And they listened to God and they obeyed God and Paul and Barnabas were sent out on what is now known as the first missionary journey. So that's what happened in the first three verses of Acts chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up today. I'm in John chapter 13, so I guess I should turn the pages here. Acts chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up in verse 4. So follow along with me if you've got a device or your paper Bible, whatever you've got, and let's pick it up in verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salome, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. All right, let's stop there for a second. These guys have sailed to this island called Cyprus, and they're starting their mission work on this little island in the Mediterranean Sea, and they're going from one end of the island to the other, looking for opportunities where God opens doors to share the gospel, and they're sharing the gospel with people as they go, and when they get to Paphos, it's, it's kind of the, the larger city on the west side of Cyprus. When I say large, it's a small island, so it's not a large city, but there's a, a city center there, and there there is a synagogue of Jews. 
And so it happens to be the Sabbath when they get there and they go there and they begin to share. And we're going to look into that a little bit today. But I want you to see, it says, when um, verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, uh, did you know the Bible had magicians? This is the second time in this series on the book of Acts we've come across a magician, right? Peter and John ran across a, a magician when they were in um, Samaria, and now we see uh, Paul and Barnabas running across a magician. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about a magician, uh, you know, a top hat and a rabbit and a cane and all that kind of stuff. This is not that kind of magician, this is not the fun kind of magician that you invite to your children's birthday parties. This is a different kind of magician. This is the evil kind of magician. This guy, whose name ironically um, speaks of salvation, son of salvation, that's what Bar-Jesus means. And yet, he's a Jew, but he's a false prophet. So he has... Um, begun going around and building himself up to, as being a spokesman for God, and yet he's leading people astray, and uh, he's uh, performing what, whether he's using some satanic uh, power or whether he's just doing illusions to fool people. I picture him as some sort of a snake oil salesman that travels from town to town in the Old West, and people don't know, and he just takes advantage of them, and he makes money this way. And so he's not the good kind of magician, he's the bad kind of magician. And uh, he has attached himself to the governor of that area. And um, he has a certain amount of influence and a certain amount of power because of that relationship. And by the way, I want you to notice, um, this happens over and over in the book of Acts, that when you obey God, when you start to serve God, when you finally, you know, shake yourself free from your pew where you were just busy nodding and saying amen, and you say, I'm going to actually get out there and do what God is calling me to do, you can be sure of one thing, the enemy will oppose you. So these guys take off, and as their, as their ministry is just beginning, the first thing that happens is they get confronted by this guy. We're going to see more about this story in a second. And he is trying to get in the way of what they're doing, and he is trying to block the message of the gospel. And don't be surprised, my friends, when you decide, listen, God has given me a heart of compassion and he has called me to get involved with helping those less fortunate. And I'm, I'm now volunteering um, to help in a nursing home or I'm now volunteering to, uh, you know, help in a hospital or I'm now uh, serving for uh, a nonprofit ministry that's helping people who are hurting or I'm now going to share the gospel with my friends or whatever. Do not be surprised when you start if you don't run into some walls. That's exactly what's happened here. It's exactly what happened to Peter and John when they went down to Samaria. There is going to be resistance but in the next six or seven verses, Paul and Barnabas deal with this magician. And, and we're not going to take the time to read it, but let me just tell you, through an incredible act of God's power, they ask God to strike this guy blind, and he goes blind. 
And now he's wandering around and has to be led about by the hand, and it gives incredible credibility to the message that they are bringing because they don't just bring some new message, but clearly the power of God is supporting them in what they're doing. And so we're going to talk more about that starting next week in our series on power, but for now, let's just leave that behind and let's move down to verse 13. Uh, Verse 13 Now, when Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You might want to make a note of that in your mind because that's going to become an issue later. By the way, this guy, John, who was there as their helper who leaves them, is also known as Mark. His name is John Mark, and he's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So he was the one who went with them as a helper, as a, as a part of their ministry team, but they're only this far into their journey and he decides to leave. And it's all that we know about it is that he left them while they were there and went back to Jerusalem. But it comes up later and becomes an issue. Continuing on, um, verse 15, uh, no, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials said to them, uh, uh, sent to them saying, brethren, if any of you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. All right, let's stop there. So they, they've journeyed to the island of Cyprus. They have worked their way across the island. And now they have left Paphos and gone north across the Mediterranean Sea up to the main continent. And when they get there, they go to the port city of Perga. And from Perga, they go further north to a little, south, a little town called Pisidian Antioch. Now, just last week, we heard that they came from a town called Antioch. This is a different Antioch right? So don't be surprised or confused by this. Um, There's many cities, the names of cities that show up in all kinds of places. In fact, I think there's a Newport Beach in like every coastal state in America. Um, So they're at a different Presidian Antioch, uh, a different Antioch, this one in Presidian, so they call it Presidian Antioch. And uh, they arrive there and it happens to be the Sabbath, And so because it's the Sabbath, they go to a worship service in the synagogue. And because they are visiting rabbis, remember, Paul is a Pharisee. And so he has the credentials. In fact, a Pharisee from Jerusalem, he is a heavyweight. And so he uses those credentials in the synagogue and he gets in and he gets to meet with the leaders and all that kind of stuff. And they say to him, listen, since you're a visiting pastor, we would love for you to come up and share. I know that seems strange. This has happened to me numerous times. Where I've been in a friend's church for some reason, a conference, or maybe uh, maybe I was on vacation or whatever, and then what they, I'm just sitting there, and then they're like, hey, Pastor Doug is with us today, and so Pastor Doug, why don't you come up and give us an exhortation from the word? I'm like, wow, um, sure, I can do that, and then I just make something up, right? Um, which is all I do on Sunday mornings for you guys too, just whatever comes to mind, that's what I share with you. 
So they invite these guys forward to, after the reading of Scripture, and say, do you have a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation for the people? And so Paul gets up and he begins to share the gospel. And we stopped reading there at verse 16 where he says, okay, I want you to listen. And then over the next many verses, he begins to unfold the story of the gospel beginning all the way in the book of Genesis. So beginning in Genesis with the patriarchs, he moves them forward through the exodus, through the entry to the promised land, through the kings, through um, Solomon and David and moving forward to the prophets all the way up to the time of Jesus. And he's showing them from the scriptures that they already accept as truth, uh, he he is starting where they are, right? And he says, listen, you guys know about Abraham, you know about Moses, you know about David, you know about... Elijah, let me tell you what they were all talking about. You think you know the scriptures, but you don't really understand. All that is in the Old Testament, says Paul, points us to the coming Messiah. And I'm going to make an argument that that coming Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. So that's the context. And he gives this long sermon, and basically it's a historical message of this has been the history of Israel. But nestled into Paul's sermon is a simple statement that could easily go unnoticed. Paul's talking about how the book of Psalms actually has a lot to say about the Messiah and how Jesus fits the description in the book of Psalms. And by the way, that whole Old Testament does the same thing. And, it, and he's trying to make the point that Jesus is the Passover lamb, that Jesus is the scapegoat of Yom Kippur, that Jesus is the temple that they worked so hard to build, that Jesus is the high priest who, who um, intervenes between us and God, that Jesus is the angel of the Lord who came and visited Abraham, that Jesus is both the deliverer that is talked about in Isaiah and the form of deliverance. And he's making this whole point. But the Jewish scholars, having known all those scriptures, never understood. And they didn't realize until now, as Paul is explaining this, that all of this was pointing to this Messiah who we now call Jesus. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Take your Bibles, just leave a finger there in uh, Acts 13, and go back to the Old Testament and turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we're gonna, we won't read the whole Psalm, we're just using this by way of example, but in Psalm 22, verse one reads this way. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard that before? Does that sound familiar? Those are the very words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, while being crucified, is quoting from Psalm 22 when he cries out to the Father who has turned his face away while the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Skip down to verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. My strength 
is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written centuries before Jesus is hung on the cross. This is a picture of the crucifixion of the Messiah, whose hands and his feet were pierced, whose heart melts within him, like that's poetic language, but literally, you know how someone dies when they're crucified? They die of asphyxiation, and the heart fills with water. And when they came to Jesus and they put the spear between his ribs and up into his heart, blood and water flowed out, which tells us that the pericardium or the surrounding tissue in the heart burst. And Jesus literally died of a broken heart. And he says, my heart melts within me. He says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Exactly what was done at the time of the crucifixion. See, my point is this. Now, looking back on this psalm, we go, oh, I get it. But no one understood it then. No one understood that this is a picture of the coming Messiah. And so what Paul is doing as he is unloading this information in Pisidian Antioch is he's helping them to see this picture of the coming Messiah as it is revealed throughout the history of um, the nation of Israel. Now, let's get back to Acts chapter 13. I feel like I want to preach a whole sermon on uh, Psalm 22, but it was just an example. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. Okay, so after explaining that Jesus came, that he died on the cross, that he rose again on the third day, Paul makes the case that all of this was actually foretold in the Old Testament, and verses that they had always thought were just about David were actually about Jesus, and that gives us the context of the point that we're going to focus on today. Skip down in Acts chapter 13 to verse 34. After explaining all of this, in the middle of his History lesson, here's what Paul says. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Okay, so he's saying, I know you thought this psalm was about David, but it's not just about David, it's about Jesus. Because after all, remember, David died as great as he was. David died, and you know what happened after he died? They buried him. And what we don't think about is what happened after they buried him, and that is he underwent decay. 
And he goes, we understand that all the patriarchs, including the great King David, underwent decay, but the scripture says that this Messiah will not undergo decay. Even though he dies, he will not decay. And so he had to be raised from the dead. And so we get this incredible picture that he's pouring out and he's using David as this example and he's saying, this psalm is not about David. This prophecy is not about David. It's speaking of Jesus. Now, we're going to focus now on verse 36. We just read it. Let's read it again. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. It's this verse that's just a part of a long story. We're just reading along and saying, yeah, you know, David died and then he underwent decay and let's keep going and here's what the gospel is and here's how you get saved. And we pay no attention really to verse 36, but verse 36 has always jumped out at me. It's a really important truth. Now, let me be very, very clear, okay? I want to be faithful with the word of God. Verse 36 and what we're going to pull out of verse 36 is not the point of this passage, The point of the passage is that the gospel has always been in place and this is the only way that a person can be saved from their sin and given new life. That's the point of the passage. Uh, Hopefully that's clear. But when we look at verse 36, it's just spoken of -of matter-of-factly that David, it says, um, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Okay, no problem. There are so many things he could have said about David. Why get into whether he undergoes decay? There's so many things he could have said. He could have said, David, who, by the way, was the guy who killed Goliath. David, who, by the way, was the great king of Israel. David, who, by the way, was the one who led our nation back into a time of worship and praise. David, who wrote half of the book of Psalms. He could have said so many good things about David. He could have also said some bad things about David, right? He could have said, David, who, by the way, was an adulterer. David, who, by the way, committed murder. David, who, by the way, uh, had a ruined marriage. David, who, by the way, couldn't get along with his sons. David, who, by the way, had numerous failures in his story. If you go back and read, you'll see it. He could have said any of those things. David's life was like this. It's a very up and down life. When it came to summing up David's life in one sentence... Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke chose to mention that David served God's purpose in his generation. That's how David is remembered in the book of Acts. And of all the things we could have said about him, what we remember is that David served God's purpose in his generation. That's how he's remembered. And so I ask you, How do you want to be remembered? What would you hope that when they gather to wipe their tears and reminisce about your wonderful life, what would you hope they remember to be true about you? When they try to think, what should we put on the headstone? What would you hope would come to everyone's mind? What do you want people to say about you? How do you want to be remembered? Do you want people to say, well... He was really, really successful in business. 
You want people to say, man, she was beautiful in college. You want people to say, one of the smartest people I ever knew. You want people to say, oh, he was so funny, he always kept us laughing. Do you want people to talk about your talent in sports or in music or in business? Do you want them to remember you for your hobbies? What are you going to be remembered for? I can't think of an epitaph better than this one. He served God's purpose in his generation. We don't think about this enough. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again, if you're a child of God, then listen, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Will you serve God in your generation? I want you to just flip over real quick, couple books that write and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Now, the context here is about immorality and sexuality, um, but, I, but there's a point that's made in these last two verses that are important. Verses 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. As I said, when he says glorify God in your body, the context there is sexual immorality and sexual morality, right? That's the immediate point that he's making. But there is a broader point that he's also making when he says, therefore glorify God in your body. That phrase in your body is a colloquialism that means while you have a body, while you're here on earth, Glorify God because you've been bought with a price, because you are not your own. God has a plan for you in your generation. God has a purpose for you in your generation. And when you live out that plan, the impact goes way beyond your generation. And you are going to influence a next generation who will influence a next generation who will influence a next generation. And that, by the way, is what we mean when we say God wants to change the world through us. He does it one person at a time, one life at a time, one generation at a time. And so God has this amazing purpose for you in your generation. And if that is true for each of us individually, it's also true for us as a church family. When we're living out our specific purpose in life, God changes our lives. And when God changes our lives, God changes the world through us. So for any of you who may be confused or disillusioned, for any of you who may be going through a hard time and, and wondering what it's all about, and whether there's any point, if you're wandering aimlessly and you're not sure if you really matter, Listen to the way David is described. Not perfect, not flawless, not without mistakes, not without failures and setbacks in his life. But when all is said and done and we look back, what can we say about David? He accomplished God's purpose in his generation. It is so easy to get distracted. So easy to get distracted by so many things, work, I mean, all of our bosses are expecting more and more and more. We need you to focus. We're pushing. We're trying to hit our goals. School, 
A lot of people heading back to school right now, and it's going to be different than it's ever been before. Relationships, which can, can either be so wonderful and exciting that they get all of our attention, or so messed up that they require all of our attention. Money, which is always this thing that we're trying to get more of because we think we don't have enough. Material things can be a distraction. Sin can be a distraction. There's so, so many distractions, but we must never forget this. You and I, we exist for a purpose. We're not here on accident. We won't take the time to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter two, famous passage where it says, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, um, but um, it, is a, it is a gift of God. It's a free gift. And then he goes on and he says this, for we are his workmanship, or his unique, his unique uh, masterpiece. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That means if Jesus has set you free from your sin, he has a purpose for your life. And that's true for us individually and it's true for us collectively. Think about what God has done for you. In Romans chapter 12, it gives us this incredible picture. Romans 12, four through 13, you can read it this week at home uh, in your quiet time. Romans chapter 12, he goes, listen, not all of us are the same. The body of Christ is one body, but we're all different members. And some have this gift, and some have that gift, and some have this to offer, and some have that to offer, but we're not the same. But when you put us all together collectively, there's something absolutely profound there that God wants to use to change the world. Here's my point. You are the only you in the world. You are the only you in your family. You are the only you in this church. You are the only you in the company that you work for. You are the only you in your neighborhood. God designed you. You're not an accident. You're not somebody who's wandering aimlessly trying to figure out if they fit somewhere. You fit. God has uniquely shaped you. He's uniquely prepared you. He's uniquely placed you for maximum impact. You were designed to serve God's purpose in your generation. You were. How's it going? Is there anything standing in the way of you serving God's purpose in your generation? Living for something greater than yourself. And, and I don't need to give you a list of examples. When I say, is there anything standing in the way of you living out God's purpose? I'm guessing that for many of us, perhaps most of us, something comes to mind right away. There's some distraction. There, there's some habit. There's some pattern. There's some relationship. There's something standing in the way. Sometimes we need to get something out of the way before we can really experience the fullness of God's purpose in our lives. I don't know what that is for you, but it's worth considering. Or what about the other side of the coin? Not just is there anything standing in the way, is there anything missing that needs to be added to your life in order for you to really fully serve God's purpose in your generation? Let me ask you this. If there's something standing in the way, or if there's something that needs to be added, for you to actually live out the purpose of God, what the heck are you waiting for? 
Every moment that we cling to that which needs to get thrown out of our lives, every moment that we stand back from that which needs to be added to our lives to help us actually walk with God and experience him to the fullest and be used by him to carry out his purpose in our generation is a moment you will never get back. What are you waiting for? Isn't it time to put off all those things that are a hindrance to us? And isn't it time to put on the things that are needed in order for us to actually walk with God? And let's not forget this. We are in this together. God's not asking you to just fix yourself and be a superhero and never make a mistake and be able to handle everything. He's put you in a church family. And he said, listen, let's lock arms that we might be stronger as one, stronger together than we are apart. We're in this together. We are each unique members of Christ's body and that forms one unified body. We each have a role to play. But we're each at our best when we're walking in God's unique purpose together. So, I guess I could have skipped all of that and just made these three points. Number one, God has a great purpose for your life. Number two, God is not finished with you yet. So don't be thinking because you're looking up at the sun from down in a hole that God must be done with you because God is not finished with you yet. And number three, my friends, we are in this together. Let's lock arms. Let's carry out our purpose together. Let's each present to God what he has uniquely given us to present that we might all together carry out God's purpose in our generation. You have one life to live on earth. Let's not waste one more moment. We, by God's grace, are the body of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we just want to confess that we desperately, desperately need you. That apart from you, we can do nothing. And so when we talk about our uniqueness and our gifts and our skills and our uh, preparation and all that we bring to the table, we know that apart from you, we bring nothing to the table. And so we just want to thank you, God, that by your spirit, through the power of your word, you have placed us in the body of Christ and we are a part of your great purpose. We pray today that we would carry out your purpose in our generation, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.